Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. Awesome. We have a special guest today. We have the Blair Osler joining us, artist, theologian, philosopher, author of the upcoming book, Queer Mormon Theology and Introduction, hopefully coming out by, when, when were we trying to get that out, Blair? Hopefully June 1st, Pride Month. Hopefully June. Oh, wow. Yes, that'd be dope. Yes. So exciting stuff and really excited to have Blair joining us. Welcome, Blair. Uh, it's really good to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Absolutely. Was there Maybe anything? We should, yeah. We should uh, all say our names and pronouns. Okay. I so guess. I'm Derek Knox and my pronouns are he, him, and his. Okay. I'm James Jones. Also pronouns he, him, his. And I'm Blair Osler. I go with she, they. All right. Welcome. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and get right into it. We uh, are really excited to have Blair on. And oh, shoot. Was there anything else just by way of introduction you wanted the people to know before we just kind of launch into our interrogation, if you will? No, introductions are boring. Just go to my website, BlairOsler.com, and you'll find all the introduction you need. Let's just get into the good oh, stuff. Oh, great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We'll be sure to put that website in the show notes as well. You'll be able to get to know Blair a little bit more and see what she's working on. Uh, Derek, why don't you go first this time? I always like launch off with the, with the questions. So Blair, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, your, your positionality, uh, any of your identities that you would like to share with us. Um, you know, were you raised in the church? What was like that like? What, what is your family like? What is your experience like? Just start there. Absolutely. So um, I grew up Mormon and I come from the pioneer stock kind of Mormon to where uh, I'm a ninth generation Mormon. Uh, and I had a relatively typical upbringing in the church other than um, I was a military brat. So we moved around a lot. So I went to church in like basements in Korea and all sorts of weird places. So I think that does give a little bit different perspective, more of a global perspective of the church and less of a Utah American centric uh, uh, experience of the church. Um, I had, uh, my mom grew up Catholic. And so she definitely gave me a more Unitarian Universalist approach to Mormonism. She always used to say growing up, you know, um, if I met a good Catholic boy, I would have stayed a good Catholic girl and been a good Catholic girl, but I met a good Mormon boy. So now I'm a good Mormon girl doing good Mormon girl things. And so she very much had this kind of like embrace truth wherever it comes from kind of mentality. And that really helped shape my views of Mormonism as well um, around puberty, I guess. I realized I was bi, um, but considering church culture, I kind of kept that business to myself. Um, I found a husband, got married, told him I was bi. That was a long bumpy road, but we're on the good path now. <laughs> um, and yeah, I definitely have a genderqueer experience. Um, I have non-binary biology, as some people refer to it as intersex. And so biology is on a spectrum, sexuality is on a spectrum, gender is on a spectrum, and I'm on all those spectrums. And it's all more woven into um, my Mormon identity too. I, I, I don't think, I think a lot of people uh, sometimes see these two things as antithetical to one another, like you can't be both Mormon and queer. But for me, they're both in there and I have no intention of denouncing either one of them, but rather reconciling how these pieces fit together. 
Wow. Yeah. So tell us, do you think, how do you think your experience as a more, uh, as a, both all of your identities in terms of sexuality, gender identity, all of these would have, do you think, well, let me figure out how to phrase this question. Take your time. Compared to what, what you would be in some other tradition, do you think that Mormonism gives you some categories or frameworks or some analogies that give you language to express some of these uh, spectrum type experiences, some of these flexible or um, binary busting experiences that you have? Definitely. I think that Mormonism, particularly as a religion and a theology, is ripe for queer exploration. I think there are a lot of things like eternal progression, this idea mm-hmm. that everything's dynamic and always changing. There's a lot of um, uh, liberation theology tied up in this, a lot of mm-hmm. freedom, agency, choice, all these things that kind of tie into it. Unfortunately, as my experience was as um, just an average Sunday school experience, I did not get that growing up. It was rather uh, queer antagonistic. It was binary. It was very um, black and white, difficult to see the nuance and how things could be, I'll say, queerified. But then as I grew older and as things changed, I was able to see Mormonism in a much, much different light than how I was taught in my youth. And it took a long time to deconstruct a lot of these harmful narratives that came out of Mormonism that were harmful to my identity, but seeing, wow, that same theology is actually my salvation as well. It's both in there. And so it's really just exploring all the different ways that we interpret this and um, come to see ourselves in it. It's, it's hard to say too, like as compared to other religions or other um, theologies and interpretations, it's really hard for me to imagine that because I don't know if I could imagine myself as anything but Mormon. Like I, I, wow, I joke yeah. all the time. I joke all the time that um, I'm, I'm irrevoc- irrevocably Mormon. I'm irredeemably Mormon. Even if I wanted to not be Mormon, I could not not be Mormon. Even if I left the church, I would still be Mormon or whatever wow. it is. Like, it's just who I am. It's my lens. It's how I see the world. It's how I envision my purpose and my identity and everything. So um, yeah, I think Mormonism is ripe for that. It, it just takes a little bit of work. So I wrote a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to, yeah. uh, one, I, you did send me an outline of the chapter or the table of contents one time of your book. And I'm very interested in where that's going. And, uh, I hope that in some ways that your book would be life-giving for people outside the Latter-day Saint tradition, like other queer Christians, we've got stuff we can share with them. Definitely. I think one of the tricky things about Mormonism, though, as a, as it's very um, material and it's very physical to whereas not all other Christian traditions embrace that same Mm -hmm. kind of material uh, physicality that exists. And a lot of my theological interpretations uh, draw off the physical. So I think there is nuggets in there for other Christian traditions, but it is still very, very Mormon in that it doesn't talk about the Trinity. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, metaphysics or anything like that. God is very material. Our bodies are very material. And Mm -hmm. the, the theology draws off that materiality. 
Yeah, in many ways, Mormonism itself is a queer expression of Christianity. We don't fit in a lot of the, the standard categories of classical Christianity. And there are a lot of binaries in classical Christianity. You have a stark difference between heaven and hell with no in-between. You have God and humans, and those are separate categories. But we've blurred that line in Mormonism. We've blurred the line between heaven and hell. We've blurred the line between physicality and immateriality that is so stark in other Christian contexts. We've kind of really played on those edges and in those uh, ambiguities. Well, we also play on the edges of ambiguities of um, theology between like God and humans, because we really embrace this mm -hmm. idea of theosis or divinization that everyone gets the opportunity to become a God. So that distinction between God and human or uh, God and or, or post-human and human, that's kind of a blurred line too. That's its own kind of spectrum, right? Like we read in the King right. Paul at sermon about God was once human as we are and God became God and all these things. So like in Mormonism is a very queering breaking down of binaries that um, people are not used to seeing broken down in that way. But Mormonism really does have it in it to be very non-binary in that way. It breaks down a lot yeah. of those binaries. We also have this cultural binary of the church of either you're in the church or you're out. Either you're um, you have to choose one or the other. And it seems like your journey is definitely having a foot in both worlds of uh, with reference to the whether you're in or out of the institutional church. So tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> no, um, I like to keep people guessing. They're like, is she Mormon? Is she ex-Mormon? What is she? Um, no, I really feel like the best way I can participate and practice Mormonism is in a non-binary way. So mm -hmm. for example, um, I, I don't attend church anymore. It was, um, it, it was very damaging. To, it, it offended my spirit. You know what I mean? And when you offend my spirit, you're offending my body. And so I needed to remove myself to worship in a holy place where I could feel the spirit. I couldn't mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. the spirit in such a queer antagonistic environment. So I no longer attend the church. I no longer attend the temple, but I am still very active in Mormonism per se. I still participate in conferences and discourse and publications, podcasts, you name it. Um, my sister, she's funny. She's a, um, she uh, is, she's in the stake young women's presidency. And she's like, I don't know, Blair, you're more Mormon than I am. I can't wow. do the things you do and everything. And we just participate in Mormonism much much differently. And it's not that I don't want to participate in those other activities and all those things. It's just not um, family friendly for me right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. to be participating in temple rituals that um, deny my existence, de deny my biology, the fact that I actually exist and was born right. this way. Um, it's hard to participate in like the temple and church when my daughter talks about growing up and marrying a little girl or going a girl or marrying a girl. And I'm like, oh, but you can't have that in the temple. And so one of the things I took away from Mormonism or still hold very near and dear to my heart is that Mormonism is all about eternal connections and families. And I'm like, mm -hmm. if this isn't a safe environment for my family, I have to put my family in a safe environment where we can worship Mormonism respectfully and authentically. And I always think about like stand ye in holy places, right? My home is a temple. And so I'm not going to invite those negative influences into my interpretation of Mormonism, into my practice, into my worship. And same with my family. My family deserves to participate in Mormonism. And 
in a more authentic way. And I know that's really hard for some people because on both sides, like <laughs> my friend, Geraldine has this saying, she's like, when you straddle the fence, both sides just punch you in the nuts. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, that's what it kind of feels like sometimes because like, I really do have one foot over here and one foot over here. And it really makes people uncomfortable because people have long left the church and are like, this is so damaging to queer people. You are actually giving queer people hope in a place where they should not be and they should be over here living their best life xyz and then i have people inside the church saying you can't be querying the theology like this this whatever it is you're doing it's wrong and so it has a tendency to aggravate both sides and that's really not even my intention like i'm just existing and participating in mormonism mm -hmm. as i know it and as i can safely and ethically with having respect to my tradition. And that's, that's, that's a tricky line to tell. I'm not going to lie. Wow. That's so great. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be very inspired by that uh, ending. So I've asked so many questions. Let's see if James has any questions. <laughs> I actually just have more of a follow-up to uh, what Blair has been talking about just now. We've talked a lot about how a lot of what Mormonism is in terms of blurring the lines between you know, deity and humans and how that relates to the queer experience. I want to know, in your opinion, and you know, this may not be something that we need you specifically to speak to, but I am very curious to hear what you think about how Mormonism has got itself into such a black and white paradigm or just a black and white way of thinking about so many things when it just seems like there are so many ways in which Mormonism, in which the gospel does not fit any norms, how it's so unconventional by nature, yet we got to ourselves, we got ourselves into this situation where we're very black and white, or if I can just be blunt, we are a very homogenous white church that's very straight male oriented, that's very uh, cisgendered, and that's just very uh, hostile towards things that are different. So do you have any kind of hypothesis or I, I don't even know if that's the right word. Do you yeah. have any kind of uh, theory on how we got to this place where a faith that has so much room to be so groundbreaking in so many ways and blur the lines in so many ways has become so this? Yeah, I think, honestly, I kind of think it's part of just an evolution cycle that a lot of radical ideologies go through. We start off usually with someone charismatic who has this brilliant new subversive idea way of doing things, Joseph Smith. And things happen, it gets turbulent, and then you have to kind of rein things in a bit because things are falling apart. But then at the same time, uh, the group of people, the, I'll say followers or adherents or whatever it is to that ideology, they become a little bit complacent and then become maybe even like the pride cycle a little bit. Well, we have yeah. the truth. We oh. have the truth. We know yeah. what's going on. We have the answers. So we don't even need to do that or talk about that or explore that. And then it comes to the point of like total denial and hostility to anything new. Hostile. So I, this, this, this also happens with Jesus too, right? Jesus yep. is this radical leader and this is what happens. So it happens in a lot of different ways in which new radical ideas come about, usually through a charismatic leader. And then slowly the adherents kind of shape it and form it and solidify it into something far less radical until it becomes normalized. And then it becomes, I'll dare I even say, um, entrenched so far to no longer be radical anymore, but radically conservative in that we're not even going to explore these other ideas and possibilities now. So I guess 
the long, the short answer is, um, well, through the line of prophets, there's been some prophets and presidents of the church who have been more um, hostile to exploration and um, uh, I'll say hostile to uh, defying authority. Like you hear this when the, when the prophet speaks, the thinking's done, that kind of attitude happening. And it just slowly over time takes over from there to the point where what I'm doing, I'm literally just like talking about our own theology and telling you what's in the scriptures in a way you haven't seen before. And people will see this as a very hostile threat. And I'm like, I'm reading you the scriptures. Mm -hmm. This is your doctrine. This mm -hmm. is in the eyes. I'm like, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what's in your book. Mm -hmm. But that can be so hostile to someone who's like, well, no, there is only one way to read this book. And it's this way. And that's yeah. this line of authority that happens. So I don't know if it's something to like uh, lament or be upset about. It just seems like part of the process in a lot of ways. We're humans. We like things easy. We like we like a benevolent authority telling us how to do things until we don't anymore. And then we radicalize and then we start the cycle all over again. So wow. this seems like an inevitability that the next step is basically going to be some kind of radical revolution in the church, perhaps, where we are able. Yeah. OK, yes. Uh, all about that. All about that. That seems to be what you're saying is the next step in this whole process that uh, we find ourselves in this whole cycle that we find ourselves in am i i don't want to put words in your mouth but like is that a fair is that a fair assessment yeah yeah definitely and it's different for every person too um i think about different the way people have approached queer issues in the church and it's so varied right now there are some mm -hmm. very active temple going uh church members who are very queer interested queer positive queer inclusive or at least attempting to in a lot of ways and then there are some that are very queer hostile. And so um, I guess yes to everything you just said. And there's just a really broad variance happening within the church right now. We are a house divided and we're still figuring this out on the interior. We like to think about like the queer radicals outside the church and then the good queers inside the church. And it's just not that easy. It's just not. We are still figuring this out all together, inside, outside, in between, non-binary, it's happening. There's too many data points to say this data point there, that one there. It's just wow. Yeah, and going back to your radical and complacency cycle, what we notice is those charismatic leaders almost always come from the margins. Like Jesus was on the margins of the, his institutions. Joseph was on the frontier, literally. And in terms of education and access, there's just so many ways that the closer you are to the margins, the farther you can see outside the, uh, the, st the status quo. Well, and I think it also has to do with the margins set you up with some really hard boundaries. And that, and I feel like leads to creativity in a lot of ways, a creativity birthed out of necessity. When push comes to shove and you're in this small space and there's nowhere else to go, you start to get really creative really fast. And especially right. for people on the margins, a lot of times it is a matter of life and death. You know, it just becomes that place where like you get creative or you die. And that's what happens on the margins. And so if you're going to get um, radical or interesting, creative, uh, charismatic leaders, a lot of times it probably will come from those margins. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm curious, as someone who was socialized to be female, how do you see uh, women's issues in the church? Oh, wow. 
uh, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> <laughs> about to say, broad um, question. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I definitely agree with and share a lot of the plight of a lot of uh, Mormon feminists who have done so much incredible work. Um, I think there definitely has been some downfalls in some Mormon feminist movements strategically and, um, and uh, ideologically too. I think some of them have tended to be a little bit, um, well, first, no, first I'll validate. First I'll validate. Um, I agree that Clearly for me, I think all genders should be ordained. I don't think this is a gendered experience that only men can hold the power of God and exercise that power. And I think that that should be formalized through formal ordination, not just through polite platitudes of we all have the priesthood. Well, yeah, we do, but I still can't baptize my kid on Sunday. Can I know I can't, can I? Right. So it's both. It's about institutional authority and personal authority. So it's both. And I want to validate all the Mormon feminists who have just done wonders of work in that area. Um, I, I do think that there's room for improvement in that a lot of feminist, Mormon feminist work has tended to be focused on um, white women's issues and um, straight cis women's issues. And I see a lot of uh, Mormon feminists trying to change that and trying to fix that and do a lot of good things um, to be more inclusive. I think it also has, um, in some ways been kind of queer antagonistic too, to mm -hmm. whereas some feminist issues. So there are some, we'll, we'll leave names out of it. There are some feminists at BYU who are strongly affirmed in their uh, feminist teachings and, um, and their professors and doing great things, but it's very binary. It's very women are this, men are this. We have a heavenly mother and we have a heavenly father. So alongside our patriarchy, we're going to have an equally powerful matriarchy. And what we're doing here is still perpetuating binary systems of oppression that neglect the experiences usually of non-binary, trans, queer, intersex bodies that act actually mm -hmm. exist in the world. And so what these binary systems do is they say, well, you don't belong here. You're less than, or at worst, you're a mistake. We're going to cut you up, make sure you fit our system. Instead of cutting mm -hmm. up our system, we're going to cut up intersex bodies or whatever it is. Um, and so I love working with Mormon women and I love working on Mormon feminist issues and being a part of that and staying up to date. I do participate with some uh, caution and a little bit of apprehension because you mm -hmm. never know when you went too far to threaten their own sense of soft power within a patriarchal system that they'll turn on you, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that happens in every marginalized group, right? Even within the queer community with gay men and, you know, bi women or whatever it is. And I, I want to do less of operating from a pot of scarcity and operate from let's be mutually beneficial here. How can we help? How can we help cis women's needs and queer women's needs? How can we help gay men's needs and, you know, pan women's needs, whatever it is, let's operate from a system of collaboration and reconciliation instead of a system of scarcity. And sometimes, ooh, sometimes feminists, Mormon feminists do that, even though I strongly agree with the majority of what Mormon feminists are saying about even cis straight women aren't even full members of the church in a lot of ways. You can't even bless your baby or baptize or whatever. Like, honestly, it, it, it's a lot of those issues that make it difficult for me to participate in the church as well, because my husband's done with the church. 
how am I supposed to baptize my babies? How am I supposed to like, how am I supposed to get through the day-to-day activities? You know, I get it. You're supposed to call up a minister and everything, but it is a little bit um, uh, condescending to be able to suggest that I can't preside in my own home. Mm -hmm. Too much? No, (laughs) no, I'm just thinking, I don't, I wish you were. That's all you had to say. Like, (laughs) For such a broad question where we could literally spend the remainder of the episode just talking about this stuff. Um, I'm surprised you didn't go more off on that whole intersectionality piece because like that's something I have noticed in uh, these movements is just the general lack of intersectionality and I get why you know intersectionality takes a lot of effort and it takes longer. It's usually very easy to focus on you know in the case of you know Mormon feminists on the you know, on the straight white feminists, on the straight white women in the queer community, the gay white men in the black community, the the straight black male, just it's it's easier to do, but you know, you tend to leave a lot of people in the dust that way. And that's, I mean, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I guess I well, just- Well, and one of, the, one of the hardest parts is, and one of the things I see most common in the is, is there's this pedestalization of womanhood that happens within the church. And a lot of cis white feminists uh, are upset about this pedestalization and um, are like not seeing that queer black women don't get that same level of pedestalization. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a queer woman, it's not like, oh, look at how wonderful and benevolent and da 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 da. Oh, women are so much more spiritual, blah, blah, blah. I didn't get that courtesy. I got, oh, you're non-binary. Oh, your biology doesn't fit. Oh, you're queer. You like women. Oh, and you don't get that same level of um, benevolent sexism. I just got straight up sexism. And I'm I'm, obviously, if you can see me, really white. um, And I'm guessing a lot of women in color don't get that same level of benevolent sexism too. It's hostile. It's hostile. It's not okay. Yeah. It's a lot. So that, sorry, Derek, you had a follow-up, brother. I was gonna say, and it also seems like that that pedestalization leaves out a lot of cis women too, cis white women, the, those who are uh, for whatever reason don't have a husband, those who for whatever reason don't or or can't have children. Like that pedestal leaves off a bunch of cis women. Exactly. This is what happens with centralized power authority structures. When the power and authority is centralized in one focused location, that pedestal gets smaller and smaller. And so other people start falling off. And so you mentioned a lot of great things like we're very... um, mononormative group in that you get married and you practice monogamy and you have babies if you don't fit that sorry if you're infertile sorry you don't fit that same pedestal but we'll fix you in the next life well maybe she doesn't want to be fixed all right have you thought about that anyway um i think that when it comes to especially the way i look at theology as well is decentralizing that kind of authority structure and decentralizing the narrative and decentralizing even to an extent the way we look and think and talk about God because we think about God as this one centralized character figure and in paintings and in works he's usually white singular cisgender male right but if we look deeper into our theology God's a little bit more than that God is not just a one-time occurrence God is an occurrence that any one of us can attain at any time so there's black gods there's queer gods, there's woman gods, there's 
all sorts of gods that we're not taking into account for yet the aesthetics that we worship are this centralized authority of aesthetics and it's very androcentric and it's white you know so do you have any practical strategies for decentralizing this authority and power can we just claim it ourselves and can we just do what we're doing and then the leaders only have as much authority as we let them think they have yes and no and both and neither. Um, so I love that question so much. One of the things I do love about Mormonism is while we do, especially, sorry, I should say the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because there's a lot of branches of Mormonism that practice things differently. But in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's a very clear hierarchical line of authority of orthopraxy, meaning how we practice our religion and the authority goes from the prophet and it goes all the way and trickles down. And they always say from the prophet to the nursery worker, we're all important. Okay. But the prophet has more power. So let's just call, let's just call spade a spade here. Okay. But there's a very clear line of authority that's happening Mm -hmm. when it comes to orthopraxy and only the prophet has all the keys. But one of the things I do love is there is a clear delineated line of theological authority. The church is run by business people, lawyers, doctors, like a board of directors, so to speak. It's not really run by theologians and academics, generally speaking. That, Mm -hmm. in a very weird way, is decentralized and that our theological framework, the way we write books and talk about things and podcasts and stuff like this, we very much have the practice of, um, well, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about, believe whatever you want to believe, as long as you orthopraxy the right way right you um even in the temple you do it to this exact degree you participate in this exact way to whereas we don't have that same kind of authority going on in our theological conversations which actually makes space for a lot of liberation theology queer theology and interpreting this as long as you don't attack the authority of the orthopraxy which is a fine line to tote you know you do what you got to do i got to call out Mm -hmm. evil when i see evil you know but um at the same time Mormonism is kind of like it's it's kind of like a fun playground where it's like oh I have some theological freedom to work with here mm-hmm. because the church isn't run by theologians it's run by businessmen okay let's play that game I have a, another question for you that I hope you're really gonna like an- yeah. another set of boundaries that our culture has is this big distinction between natural and artificial, you know, it's all over our foods and everything. There's the distinction between biology and technology that even the distinction between life and death and transhumanism can blur all of those categories. Tell me, tell, can you describe transhumanism and Mormon transhumanism for our listeners? Absolutely. So um, I love Mormon transhumanism because it really did set me on my path towards developing a more queer Mormon theology. And so I give a lot of credit to my roots, which is the Mormon Transhumanist Association, um, to which I learned a lot about Mormon theology that I didn't learn in Sunday school. Uh, So transhumanism, just uh, by itself, is mostly a secular movement and generally led by white male academic atheists. And it's basically the idea that we should use and develop technologies to radically enhance the human experience. 
which is super, super broad and super tricky because it's like, what does it mean to radically enhance? It sounds like colonizing, or can this be how we help trans bodies be able to uh, express themselves as they want mm -hmm. to be expressed? So it includes a lot of things, but generally speaking, transhumanism is just the idea we should use technology to radically improve humanity. That's it. Mormon transhumanism is um, basically started by a group of Mormons who found transhumanism and was like, oh my gosh, this sounds exactly like Mormonism, just in a different language. So Mormonism, our ultimate goal is to become a god, so to speak, to become just like our heavenly parents and to share in all the same glory as our heavenly parents, uh, uh, as all of our heavenly parents enjoy. And so to do that, we actually have to do things. Uh, Mormonism is very much a religion of um, doing, right? Faith without works is dead. Mormonism takes that to the next level. We're like, yep, we're going to just go out and do things. Um, transhumanism is very similar, and it's saying we should use our technology to radically improve the human experience, maybe to the point to where we control our evolution and we become post-human human sounds a lot like a god right you have all these cool powers with invisible technologies like wi-fi and all sorts of crazy <laughs> things happening right so it's like magic and so mormonism and transhumanism are kind of two languages talking about the same kind of idea this idea that we're down here and if we work hard use our technology and do other things we end up up here um, and there's a lot of different ways to interpret that. Some really bad and scary and some really awesome and inspiring. I am over here at the awesome inspiring camp, which I consider to be more communal. We rise together, not on top of one another. This isn't a pyramid scheme. This is uh, something we do together socially as a community, right? Um, so Mormon transhumanism was the first place where I was really introduced to the idea of, um, Mormonism being a robust polytheism. And a lot of times people don't think about Mormonism as a polytheism because we think of, because we primarily just worship the deity we call Heavenly Father, right? That's the name we give him. And um, well, if you think about Mormonism, we have Heavenly Mother. So there's deity number two, right? And for anybody who wants to say that Mormonism or Heavenly Mother isn't a deity, just that's ridiculous. Please just stop. <laughs> Okay, mm. um, and, and, at least in the theology, God can't be God without being composed of both man and woman together. And that doesn't and it require anything heteronormative. It just means men and women are in union and conjunction with one another and need to work together to be able to attain Godhood, right? So at the Mormon Transhumanist Association, I was introduced to the idea of theosis being very robust and this idea that we could all become gods and that our bodies and everything is super material. And we have all these different ways of imagining things that I had not previously imagined. And I was like, so if anyone has the opportunity to become a God, well, gods are just as diverse as humanity. So the idea like folk theologies that like indigenous people will become white as they become more righteous. Like these are horrible, horrible, you know, folk theologies or like queer people will be made straight in the next life, or you're going to fix me and not make me intersex anymore or whatever it is, right. That we're going to, we're just going to fix you. I call, I call this celestial genocide. It's like, once we get to the celestial kingdom, we're just going to genocide everyone else, or you'll just become like us. It's like the ultimate form of colonization. Right. Mm, mm. But um, so in my imagination, as I interpret Mormon theology, which is not 
to make everyone all the same, but to rise everyone up together. And so for rising up together, God is not just God. God is God. I am a child of God's plural. And if I have the opportunity to become a God, God's just as queer as I am. God's just as black as her. God's just as whatever as the next person. So we have different gods of different abilities, different colors, shapes, mm-hmm. sizes, and desires. And um, that to me was when I got started on my path of like, oh my gosh, the doors are open. This is so queer. And then once I started reading the scriptures and listening to everything, I couldn't not not hear it queer anymore. I just heard people and I'm like, oh, you're saying queer things. You're saying queer things. But people don't know they're saying, they don't know they're saying queer things. And so I I felt an obligation to like constantly point this out to say, look at how queer what you're talking about right now. So for example, uh, people usually want to use um, Genesis as this place to see God created man and woman. And there's a strict binary there and that's the way it is. But if you read closely about the story in Genesis, you read about how, yes, God created light and dark, God created land and earth, and God created day and night and all these things. But God created all the things in between those binaries. So exactly. God didn't create just water over here and land over here. God created swamplands and beaches and all sorts of amazing things where these two binaries collide into one another, into these beautiful areas. Um, same with light and dark. Well, what is it? What, what is it when it's just partly dark or partly lit? Um, with, with day and night. What about dawn and dusk? What about sunset and sunrise? What about all these non-binary things God created? But yet we're okay with that. But the minute we start talking about men and women, but no, no, God created the binary, and that's all there is to it. And it's just not true. There are so many different bodies that come in there, trans bodies, intersex bodies, uh, non-binary bodies, and all sorts of things. God created all this too. So we take one little tiny scripture and rip it apart and be like, nope, that's the binary scripture. But we're okay with God creating swamplands, beaches, dawn and dusk. We're not okay with non-binary bodies. I'm just like, dude, y'all preaching a queer theology here. It's right there. You just said it. You just said it. So I just feel yep. the need to constantly point that out. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I almost, I don't know if I should say this, but I think those ambiguity, the, the, those ambiguities are actually the most beautiful parts because, you know, the, the, a bright sky is pretty and a crystal clear night is pretty, but where the fire comes is is at twilight at the sunrise and the sunset where you have this glimpse of a really vibrant thing that you don't get anywhere else. And so I think these, uh, you know, the estuaries and the amphibians all are the really cool parts of creation. Right. And it goes back to this idea of like going to the margins too. the margins of night Mm -hmm. and day are dawn and dusk. Those are the margins again. And it's in those margins that you get to see some really brilliant unique rare things and again we always go back to the people always want to make the argument that oh because because something is rare therefore it's a mistake or because it's rare it's not legitimate if only there were more intersex people then it would be legitimate and it's it has nothing to do with whether there's one intersex person on the planet or hundred thousand intersex people on the planet if there is one it is legitimate you know and so it's it's yes 
uh, non-binary bodies and genders and identities are definitely rare, but that doesn't make anyone less legitimate. I feel like another part of legitimacy comes from I, sometimes people like to think of something fixed as something more legitimate. So for example, if your gender identity is fixed or if your sexual orientation is fixed, it's more legitimate than someone else's who is more fluid, who is more flexible, who is open to different unique things. Like this is not a legitimate experience just because it's dynamic. Well, no, dynamic experiences are legitimate too. Or like this idea of mononormativity, right? The idea that, well, it's more legitimate to be straight because you're only attracted to one person and more legitimate to be gay because you're only attracted to, sorry, one gender. But by pan queer people who are attracted to lots of different genders and experiences that like somehow that's less legitimate. And so it really, it really is interesting to see how God created this totally dynamic world and we're totally dynamic beings with the potential to become just like our heavenly parents with the seeds of divinity in us with this all amazing power to change. Yet we're like, Nah, if you change and you're fluid, that's just not legitimate. It's like everything God made is fluid. Everything, even God is fluid. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like God mm -hmm. wasn't always mm -hmm. God. God changes too. God is dynamic. And the fact that God even loves shows amount of dynamic interplay. Because if God were perfect and stagnant and never did anything other than sit and be perfect, God could not love you. God could not want for you. God could not be deprived of anything that you would be, would be interested in. No, God's dynamic too. God cares. God has feelings. God likes things. Maybe God has preferences. Maybe wow. those preferences are different from the other gods. And so when we talk about Mormonism on, in Sunday, or sorry, we talk about theology in Sunday school, we talk about God. I don't feel like we take the time to actually hear and listen to what we're actually saying because we're talking on both sides of our mouth. You know what I mean? God, God created this entire dynamic world and God is this dynamic thing. Yet we demand that everyone has a permanent gender identity or a permanent sexual orientation. I might change my mind. I might be something different tomorrow. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and that gets into a, a big point about, I think a lot of people understand the gay. And by that, I mean the monosexual gay because they're like, oh, this dude's attracted to dudes. It's icky, but I know what that is. A lot of people don't. I mean, in fact, Sorry, they yeah. can't. In fact, I don't think they could un call it icky unless they had an understanding of what it is. I think with bi and pan folks, there's they they're so confused. They're, they uh, they think that you need both to be satisfied. And there's a visibility problem because unless they see you with a man in one arm and a woman in the other, you will you'll get like, I'm sure you get read as straight because you're married to a man. And if you had been married to a woman, people would read you as a lesbian. So how do we, and I, this gets back to what you're saying about transhumanism and lifting up all of humanity. We, I feel that we can't lift up anyone unless we lift up everyone because we're all connected and we all will miss the piece of that other person that I don't get to take with me if they get left behind. And I think that's Joseph's brilliant doctrine of sealing here that we have these welding links between generations and between families. We can't be perfected without each other. So what I'm saying is we've got a problem in the, especially the L and the G part of the movement in uh, 
leaving out bi folks and trans folks. And a lot of people think, oh, let's just fix it for the gay men first, because those are the pretty poster boys. Let's fix it for them first. Then we can deal with women. Once we get that fixed, we can fix it for bi people. And then once we're fixed, then we'll do the trans. But I said, I think you heard me say in another meeting, let's center the trans folks first, because if we get everything right for every trans person, we automatically get everything right for women in the church and for gay, lesbian and bi folks in the church, because there's, there's no way to have the conceptual inclusion of, of trans folks without completely de deconstructing these arbitrary expectations around the gender you were assigned at birth, limiting everything you can do in terms of priesthood or in terms of who you can marry or what you must identify as. But anyway, so give me your thoughts as to what we can do better to, to get the whole LGBT and, and actually make all the letters have their full value. So this is so tricky. And this is a place where, again, what James was saying earlier, intersectionality is hard. And so therefore, a lot of people don't want to put in the work to do mm -hmm. it. And so when we talk about the different letters in the LGBTQ community, we also have to talk about like the different races in the LGBTQ right. community. That's one of the things I love about the queer community is we really are so diverse in so many different ways, race, ability, orientation, gender, um, nationality, like there's just this big, huge umbrella and you're hitting the nail on the head that there is definitely some different strategies going on and how people are doing you know, things to be able to legitimize the queer community. And I always want to tread lightly because like, I'm kind of in the camp of like support all things queer. I love my cis gay brothers. I want you to do amazing things and be able to share your stories and things like that. But at the same time, I feel like, okay, well, we have to be able to talk about fluid orientations or mm -hmm. plural orientations or, you know, um, trans issues and things like that too so it is really tricky I feel like one of the things allies can do because this is really tricky because sometimes I see it as an ally issue is that um, sometimes allies tend to focus on same-sex attraction or homosexuality as yeah. being the queer community and if we just fix that then the rest of the things fall into place and you nailed it it's and actually not that it's the opposite if we took care of our gender issues our orientation issues would kind of fall into place much more easier than the other way around. And this is really tricky because in the church, the church has a very clear line of authority again, and that line of authority is male and it is androcentric yeah. and yeah. it is cisgender and it's mostly white. And um, to the degree that queer people are going to be heard in the church, a white gay celibate man is a lot less threatening than the polyamorous, bisexual, non-binary queer woman writing books about queer Mormon theology. Yeah. Because just in general, Mormons in general aren't used to seeing women or feminine presenting people as in positions of leadership and authority. We have a hard time listening to those voices. We have a hard time listening to people of color. We have a hard time listening mm -hmm. to a lot of people. And so I guess in one way to help with that, I would ask that allies in their work not contribute to the burden of the queer community by making it about 
exclusively homosexuality and then doing the research to actually try and be a little more intersectional and in understanding diverse gender experiences, understanding diverse racial experiences mm -hmm. and economic experiences that happen within the queer community too. And that's, oh, yeah. really, that's really how we're going to rise together. It's we really do have to d dive into intersectionality. And it's not just about talking about it either. One of the really hard things, something I feel like a broken record because I'm like constantly saying this is just talking about queer inclusion is not queer inclusion. Having a bunch of straight people put on a fireside about LGBTQ issues is not queer inclusive. It's just straight people talking about us. Granted, they might be saying benevolent things about us, but it's still just straight people talking about us. So to be queer inclusive, you actually have to be queer and inclusive. You have, mm -hmm. you have to actually invite those queer voices, give them a microphone, let them speak, hear their voices, and being able to actually internalize and listen to an actual queer person with some sense of authority over their experience. But so often people don't want to do that. And this is why you have like, you know, Papa Osler's podcast, who's a friend. I love his work. I think he's doing great things and he should keep doing that. But at the same time with someone like Papa Osler, um, there are some people who will only listen to that voice. They won't yeah. listen to queer voices or they won't listen to black voices. Like mm -hmm. I, I would imagine, hopefully I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth or to anyone's experience, but people have a hard time listening about queerness from queer people in similar ways that people have a hard time listening to blackness from black people. It has to be mitigated through a white person or it has to be mitigated yeah. through a straight person. And so we are in a way contributing to um, uh, perpetuating oppressive lines of authority when we don't let people speak for themselves on behalf of their own experiences, which is kind of hypocritical because I just spoke on behalf of a black experience that's not mine. But I would imagine that yeah. there are a lot of paralleled experiences between people of color and queer people as well. And the fact that our voices are constantly having to be mitigated through someone else who looks or appears to have more authority. Yeah. And that's hard because I think allies do that a lot. I think allies want to help in that regard, but just talking about queer issues is not queer inclusive. You have to actually be queer inclusive. Yeah, especially baby allies who just two months ago saw a news report and now they feel like they want to help and do something and uh, their desire to do something is greater than their desire to learn. I know. And I love that enthusiasm. I do. Yeah. I want to show respect to that enthusiasm. Let's just get that directed in a more constructive direction. You know, and here's the thing about Papa Osler. He like he does a lot of overall on average good work i think he's doing more good than um than a uh, uh, disadvantage uh he's doing more good than um problematic things i think overall but he asked me a couple of years ago to be on his podcast and i declined and i said look you have all these cisgender gay white men like you have so many gay white men on your podcast list i could use them as a dating app and just go through them all right so um, I said, no, uh, you don't need another gay white man, even though my voice would have been in some ways very different than the others. Now he's gotten more of uh, the other letters and more colors and more genders. Yeah. And what you said is something that is very much overlooked in LGBT discourse is the economic diversity. Like that is, I think, the leading question, because the experience of a poor 
gay white man and a very wealthy gay white man aren't even at all the same because it, the more money you have, you can spend that money to insulate you from every problem that I would have, right? You can move to the best place. You can have your own neighborhood. You don't have to worry about being fired because you own the, the whole thing. You don't have to worry about um, just all these, econ- there's just so many things that they, and that explains why we have gay Trumpists, right? Mm-hmm. Because they care more about their tax whatevers than about the liberation of their siblings. Yep. Yep. Well, and you, in with economic intersections, well, that also hits up on racial intersections right. too. And it also hits up on so many other things mm-hmm. that, and this is why it's often the case that like trans kids of color are usually left to fend for themselves in ways that no offense that a lot of cis gay white men generally don't because of that economic standing and because our economic system is literally based on the enslavement and genocide of other races. Yeah. It's uh, in some ways it's the work of intersectionality is hard, but on from a completely different angle, it's easy because it takes work oppression takes work. Like you have to go through a lot of gymnastics. You have to go through a lot of stuff. It's just easier to to treat everyone right and and lift up everyone and make sure that we're all included. And that you just, I don't know if them making any sense or if I wish, I wish it were true that it were that easy. I actually think it's the opposite way, but I wish it were that true that it were that easy. Um, I think it takes work because it's hard for us to imagine experiences outside our own, especially when we're in positions of privilege, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I do have a lot of privilege. I should probably acknowledge that. I have a lot of straight passing privilege and I have a lot of cis passing privilege. But again, with privilege also comes erasure. So I also have a lot of erasure, gender erasure, queer erasure, and all of those things. So they do go hand in hand. But at the end of the day, I'm more interested in trying to find ways in which we can lift each other up to build allies with one another and hopefully direct that allyship and that uh, unity towards constructive ends together. Um, Because if we can't do that, then we're just going to keep cutting each other down. And that doesn't serve any of us. Really doesn't. And uh, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the next step for the saints in terms of, you know, making this work that you're doing more of a reality, making queer inclusion a reality. And I want to kind of shift that to, uh, to your book. Uh, I have not seen the table of contents. So I kind of want to know, first of all, who is the book primarily for? And uh, what was your ultimate goal with it? What was the intent with it? Was it more of a step to uh, primarily tell tell uh, your truth as a queer theologian, or was it more to uh, move the needle for people who are in a space where, you know, all this talk about uh, all, all this talk about, I suppose, queer inclusion or queer theology is very foreign to them. So, uh, a lot of questions in that one. So, let's just start with the first one. Who is the Who is the book primarily for? So I wrote the book primarily for queer people. So queer people could actually see themselves in their own theology. And as I started writing the book, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm not talking to queer people. I'm talking to all Mormons. This is your theology too. This is your experience and where you fit in there. And one thing led to another and I'm like, 
oh, queer Mormon theology is not theology just for queer people. Queer Mormon theology is really just our theology in ways we're not talking about. Right. So while it's centered on the queer experience in the beginning, and I do have personal experiences and anecdotes in there with it, it really is just Mormon theology with a broadness and robustness, hopefully to include a diversity of genders, orientations, um, uh, races. And so really it's more of just an inclusive way to look at our theology. I say it's queer because we're just not used to seeing it that way, even though I argue in the book, that's just what's written in our scriptures. I'm just telling you what's already there because some people must have passed over those verses a little too quickly. And uh, with that knowledge, um, I don't know how far in depth that we're going to be getting into, into the, into the book, but uh, ultimately when people come to see exactly what seems to be your thesis, that our theology as Mormons seems to be already queer or Mm -hmm. rather just a thing that we are not accustomed to viewing or seeing in our theology. uh, What then do you want to be able to, I suppose, get the saints to do, or rather, how do you want them to respond to your work? Well, so the hope, the hope is how I would love for people to respond to this is that they would read this and go exactly as you said, acknowledge the thesis, Mormon theology is already queer. And then the hope is from there, we actually live it. And that we actually see that if it is already inclusive of diverse genders, orientations and races, that we experience that together, that we adapt our policy accordingly. You know, changing policy without theology is just empty. We need to have the theology to back up why we change our policies. Um, And with that, this to me, this is why it's just an introduction. This is just the beginning. This is just to get us started, to show us this is the theology well, now let's implement it. Let's actually live what we're actually talking about. This is what our scriptures are saying. So let's be a part of that. I do have a sneaking suspicion. Not everyone will react that positively to it. And there will definitely be some, I have no doubt there will definitely be some negative feedback. And usually the negative feedback comes from, well, she can't do that. And it comes from the idea of, well, you know, just there's only one way to look at the scriptures because there's not a lot to say because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not attacking Mormonism. I'm not attacking their baby. I'm saying your baby's gay. So you got to deal with it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm like, this theology is queer AF. So you got to deal with that, not me. And so, um, when people get upset about that, they're more just upset about the existence of what it is and what the theology actually says than having any kind of like strong argument against it because um, it, it really is already queer. The book at the table of contents that I showed at Derek, it really just takes basic tenets of Mormonism and demonstrates how each one is queer inclusive. So like we talked a little bit on this podcast about the God being diverse about God being uh, multiple embodiments with the ability to be representative of any type of person. Um, And if you think about also in the scriptures, we read about God showing up as a dove or a burning bush. And it's like, well, well, if God can be any form, if God can be a burning bush, what, what gender is that? You know, why do we insist that God is this, this 
great white man in the sky if God is capable of all sorts of interesting morphological freedoms that we don't enjoy right now? What is the true form of God? A dude? No, that's what Joseph would accept. That's what Joseph saw. That doesn't say anything necessarily about God's true form, so to speak. So in the book, I talk about each basic tenet of Mormonism, everything from God Jesus Christ, I talk about the family proclamation, I talk about eternal progression, I talk about eternal families and all sorts of things, and basically demonstrate how, look, it's all queer inclusive right here. I don't hate your baby. I'm just showing you your baby's gay. Like, it's yeah. all good. We're going to be okay. So it sounds I, like the, oh, sorry, go ahead, Derek. No, I love that so much. And I don't want them to make this about my journey, but so many, it's one of the most common questions that I get as a, an adult gay convert who joined the church when I, uh, just five years ago, just five mm -hmm. years ago, people say, mm -hmm. Derek, why would you join a church like this? Now I can say, read Blair Oster's book and it will show you what I found. So, I mean, this is the story that captivated me and ecstatically grabbed me from where I was and brought me out into a vibrant and full life. Like, this is Mormonism. This is the Mormonism that I joined. Right. And so now, yes. now I can, now I have this book for them. And so, and I love that you bring in and, and you do this way better than I do bring in the categories of philosophy and systematic theology. Like my background is the scriptures. And that's really just what I want to do is sort of exegete the scriptures in this particular way. But I love the fact that you bring in these in a language that I almost never talk about in the podcast. I'm just so thankful that you're doing this work. Oh, good. I'm glad there's one person because there's going to be a lot of people who aren't as excited about that. But as long as you like it, it's been worth it, Derek. Oh, thanks. Now, <laughs> are you going to sort of anticipate some of these objections and head them off in your book and say, look, here's the misunderstanding you have, and I'm going to uh, address that, right? Yeah. Because so you can predict... Yep, absolutely. So the first chapter of the book is actually my least favorite chapter. And it basically talks about the way we understand queer theology right now as very dark, antagonistic. It's, um, I talk a little bit about like my own battle with suicide and depression. And this is how mm -hmm. I understood Mormonism. And this is not a fullness of joy. This is not the plan of happiness. Something is off because it's I am that I might have joy. And if I'm a part of the plan of happiness, why, when I'm taking the sacrament, am I thinking about killing myself? Something's broken here. And so that first chapter, I talk about the broken theology story that we're having right now. And this is the story that mm -hmm. how we treat queer people. It's, you know, and it, it, it's, it's not pretty, but then the whole rest of the book is like, but wait, there's more, more. and it's queer. And um, so for me, I, 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 I addressed the idea that people are like, oh, but this is what it is. But I don't like to spend a lot of time on that because that story has been played and we all know that story and that story has hurt a lot of people. And I'm interested in telling a different story. So yes, there are some objections that are very common that I do address throughout the book and different chapters and things like that. But I mostly focus on the creativity and uplifting part because that's what I needed at the time too. Like mm -hmm. I needed to be able to, I, I, the hope is, is that like, some 16 year old bi kid in church, like gets this book and was like, Oh my gosh, my, my, 
my heavenly parents love me. There's room for me. This is exactly what it was supposed to be all mm -hmm. along. And even though the church doesn't quite see it yet, you know, not judging where anybody's at on Sunday, you go to church or don't go to church. I'm not judging you on that. But to have that connection with deity and be like, God made me queer and God likes me queer. And this isn't a bad thing. And that's, that's the theology I needed. And so this is the theology I want to give to the next generations. I want to give this to my daughter. I want her to be like, look, you want to marry a girl when you grow up? Hey, you can do it right here. Your heavenly parents love you. This is how it's done right there. Just to give people a little bit of hope, because I think that, that, that's so often lacking in our queer conversations is this idea of hope. And this idea of creativity and this idea of um, a fullness of joy and happiness. And it's like, queer people deserve that too. And I'm very much of the camp, like joy is its own form of resistance. That my joy, my queer joy mm -hmm. is, is, you know, that every day I wake up with a smile on my face and I don't like have to be like suicidal or thinking about the end of my days, like. I was giving them my power and I didn't know for so long. I didn't know that I gave them that power to think that I was inherently broken, that I was inherently wrong. And I, I let them, I let them let me think that, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, Oh, I don't have to do that. And it's literally like a light bulb went off and I'm like, Oh my goodness, my queer joy is going to be my queer power and I'm going to do this. And it might upset a little bit of people, but that's going to be their thing to deal with because my queer joy doesn't need to hurt you. It doesn't need to be anything other than a celebration. You know, rainbows mm -hmm. aren't a sign of the end of days. Rainbows were the sign of good things to come. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I think I resonate with that so strongly and my my Mormonism has made me queerer and my queerness has made me more Mormon. It's just a great symbiotic effect and synergistic effect where like my faith keeps me and makes me queer and my queerness helps me stay faithful uh, when so many other queer people are like their queerness and end, uh, ends up making them uh, take their faith in a different direction. And yeah. so I'm so glad that you're articulating this but briefly i do want to honor the experiences though of people who don't find joy in that reconciliatory mm -hmm. reconciliational path whatever reconciliatory yes, yes thank you that, okay. that word yes um and that path because i could see as someone who was raised in a very fundamentalist home in a very queer antagonistic environment to where they're like i can't see mormonism as anything other than this really horrible thing that hurt me so I just wanted to also just honor that path too. If you don't find joy here, don't, don't do it. Your heavenly parents are going to love you no matter where you sit on Sunday. So, and you can't put good into mm -hmm. the world if you're dead. So go take care of you, go find right. joy and happiness and spread that joy and happiness. I'm going to do it in Mormonism. And you know what I find so fascinating about something you just said in terms of finding the word reconciliatory queer this is something that mormons and queers have in common is we make up our own words like <laughs> we make up our own categories like if you just go on queer twitter like there's all these words that i don't even know and i've been a queer activist for like 20 years there's a, because what we're doing 
is trying to label something for which there is no already pre-existent category, or we're trying to describe an experience that does, that there isn't a word for. And I think Mormons do the exact same thing. We make up words like telestial, like that's not a word. <laughs> that wasn't a <laughs> word until Joseph Smith uh, used that word to articulate something that there wasn't already a word for. And, and there's just so many ways that there's that type of uh, methodological overlap between the queer community and the Mormon world. And well, so you can make up what, whatever words you want. Yeah, I well, and I think that's also just a general characteristic of uh, populations on the margins too, right? Marginalized populations have a way of communicating and identifying with words and languages to identify experiences that other people aren't sharing in. Um, a lot of communities do this, like uh, Latinx communities, like queer Latinx people put the X you know, gender neutralized and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think diving into the syntax and the semantics of why we use the words we use and trying to identify those experiences are super important. And well, it, and it's also interesting too, because then it gets into appropriation too, of taking other people's language and using it and marking it as their own and so to speak. But um, overall, yeah, I'm a big fan of if you don't have the words, start making up the words, find the words and get those words on a book. And then other people start using those words too. I find this most common uh, with the word queer, like for a lot of people, it's such a bad word. And I'm like, this is not a bad word. And the more I use it and the more comfortable and confident I am in using it, the more other people start to use it too. And it makes me so happy inside. Yes, queer is not a bad word. This is the word you use at the dinner table with your kids, use it in church, use it is not a bad word, you know? And so I'm, I'm, I'm all about that reclaiming, reclaiming your language. Sorry, I feel like I should apologize a little bit because you were like trying to wrap things up with my book and I'm just like. Rah, 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 rah. It is totally fine. It is no, totally I love fine. where this is going. As do um, I. And I just had part of it's my fault because then I have I have, you know, such a great time talking with you and James about this that I, I get so excited. But in, in addition to making up your own words, there's also one of my theological tools is taking pre-existing words and infusing them with a, a greater vitality and sort of incarnationally like putting flesh on something that I don't have a word for, but taking a pre-existing word and letting it thrive. For, and, and I do this a lot to sort of reframe negative things in Mormonism. I just find a different word for the same thing that doesn't have the baggage. For example, a lot of people talk about doubts and how doubts are bad and doubts are whatever. So I said, instead of just using the word doubts, we can use the word curiosities because that doesn't have the same baggage. And it, curiosities are okay if you have questions, if you have these other things like you don't know and you're... Um, so we can sort of substitute some of these words. Another word, thing that I want to do is instead of using the word masturbation, I want to start using the word self-reliance. <laughs> I have never heard that one before. I heard self-abuse, but self-reliance? <laughs> no, because like, it's, already, it's already a churchy word. Yeah. And James uh, is going to like uh, never talk to me again. <laughs> I actually thought that was funny. So I'm going to keep that in the final cut. Yeah. So I'm going to use that one myself. Yeah. Oops. But, but all joking aside, I think there's like words like the word love. 
we can infuse with a broader meaning. And I, I think that's when, when Christi- the Christian tradition is at its best. And in fact, they had to take words from the Greek language and infuse them with a slightly different or a slightly more, even the word, uh, uh, yeah, there's just so many. Well, I think you're hitting the nail on the head because we use these words all the time, but we don't really take the time to sit and think about what these words actually mean. Mm-hmm. We almost say them in vain, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so for example, like when you say self-reliance, it's so funny whenever we talk about self-reliance in church, I think it's so strange to listen to people preach self-reliance in an organization that doesn't ordain all its members. And so if you're asking people yeah. to be self-reliant, but you don't ordain their members to be self-reliant, you are asking someone to be self-reliant without giving the tools to actually do it. And so we sure we talk about temporal self-reliance, but what about spiritual self-reliance mm-hmm. in which I'm constantly codependently reliant on someone else to take care of something that you won't let me do. And so it's, yes, so much is, is about these words. I actually had a, another conversation the other day, uh, with a woman online who was like, our, she was genuinely interested. She was like, what's going on? Are, are gays apostates? And she had the strangest like question of like, are they apostates? And so when we think of the word apostate, we think of this big, bad, scary word. Like this is like, like this is, you might as well have a big red A on your shirt. But an apostate really is someone who has forsaken a religious belief. And so, for example, if you are someone who believed that indigenous people would turn white as they were righteous, you should probably be an apostate and forsake that religious belief because mm-hmm. that's a really bad belief. And so when we talk about things, oh, are they apostate? And I'm like, I don't know. I have a lot of good queer beliefs. And if that makes me apostate, long live the apostates. I mean, when an apostate, if you apostasy done right is a repentant soul. It's someone who has forsaken something bad in favor for something better, for something good. And so we use these words all the time and we use them flagrantly and flippantly and we don't really think about them. But when we actually start to break them down, it's like maybe apostasy is only a threat to authoritarians who are talking about bad theology. That's who apostasy is a threat to. Apostasy isn't a threat to the community. The community is better when we apostatize the right way, right? When we forsake bad beliefs in favor for better beliefs. Self-reliance is good, but it doesn't make sense to ask people to be self-reliant without giving them the tools to do so. So yeah, I'm all about taking the words, reclaiming the words, using the words, making people think and go, she can't do that. I'm all about that. (laughs) all right we're at about an hour 10 or so so like just by way of wrapping things up a little bit are there like Derek you got any last questions or Blair do you have any uh parting thoughts you want to give to the folks before we before we wrap up here no this has been absolutely fantastic I can't thank you guys enough for having me on and um yeah once the book actually comes out we'll definitely have to come back and I'll talk through all of it and no doubt people will have some questions and criticisms that I can't wait to dive into. I mean, we're going to have to promote it as well. We're going to have to talk about it now that we've actually, we'll have a chance to read it and stuff. We'll get to like gush (laughs) about it, talk about all the things we love about it and encourage everybody to read it. I'm, I'm super excited to just know that it's in existence and know that I'll get to learn more about this stuff myself. We really don't have like you and Derek are honestly the only queer theologians I know. And just, 
you know. Well, that's it, kind of, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there's not there's not a lot of us, but we're 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 carrying the team, Derek. We'll yes, yes. <laughs> You're carrying. I'm about to say, put the whole team on your back. That's what y'all are doing. But yeah, I definitely look forward to this. Um, Blair, can you tell the folks where they can uh, find you, uh, your socials, your website, all that other stuff? Yeah, so I'm mostly on Facebook. I do very literal, like barely anything on Twitter. I consider myself an elderly millennial. I'm not so good with the Twitter. Um, but if you can find my website and my work at blairosler.com, and it's got all my publications and podcasts and all sorts of things like that. Or you can find me on Facebook where I'm always pontificating and queering Mormonism. Awesome. And then you'll of course have uh, your book dropping, hopefully that first week of uh, pride month where we'll keep our fingers crossed and send good vibes your way for that. Blair, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real treat. Thank you. And it's so nice to finally meet you too, James. Thank you so much. (laughs) Likewise.